Hello, I'm Blake. I'm Caleb. And this is the Sunday Underground. Um, it's your podcast for all things true crime, spooky, conspiracy theories. Um, but today, today is a true crime case. Great. Um, I do want to list a bit of a trigger warning just, you know, just in case anybody doesn't, uh, you know, is sensitive to these kinds of things. But there is a mention of rape. I don't go into it at all, like at all. It's just like the word. But, you know, just throwing that out there. Um, so the first guy, uh, that I'm going to tell you about is Todd Kolhep, and he is also known as the Amazon review killer. Mm. Have you heard of him? No. This guy's a wacko. Okay. In an absolute douchebag. Oh. Uh, honestly, like he, he made me very angry while I was listening to some of the interviews that he did because he's just absolutely full of himself. But anyway, we will start back at, uh, we'll start at the very beginning. So Todd Kolhep was born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida on March 7th, 1971 to Regina and William Samsel. Two years after he was born, his parents divorced and his mom married Carl Kolhep. A year later, Carl ended up adopting Todd, which is why he has the last name of Kolhep and not Samsel. Um, as a child, Kolhep lived in Florida and Georgia, and it was clear from pretty early on that there was something off about him. He didn't have very many friends. He really didn't care if he had friends or not. And he had like this weird superiority complex, even mm. as like a little, a little guy. Uh, he was very aggressive towards the other children, and there were multiple incidents that really disturbed his parents and just pretty much everyone around him. He stabbed a little girl on the bus with scissors, like right in her leg. He killed his fish by pouring bleach in the tank because he wanted to get a gerbil. And his mom had told him, no, you know, you already have a fish. Mm -hmm. uh, and also he shot a dog with a BB gun. Okay, these are all signs leading to this person's a psychopath. Absolutely. Like it, it, they start out with killing animals. Mm. As you know? a child, not that it's good as an adult, but even worse as a child, like supposed to be innocent, right? Yeah. Well, you know, he's got a different story. So in an interview that I listened to, he said that those two incidents, the one with the fish and the dog, were just a big misunderstanding. Mm. His explanation for the fish was that he was just trying to clean the tank. And the explanation for the dog was that it wasn't even him who shot the dog. It was one of his friends. <laughs> But honestly, if you're going to stab a little girl in a leg, like right in her leg with scissors, then you're gonna hurt animals too. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, when he was nine, his mom and stepdad were kind of at a loss of what to do, so they got him signed up for counseling. The counselor that talked to him um, said that he was explosive and preoccupied with sexual content. Now, I'm not sure where that came from because I couldn't find anything. Um, like relating to that, mm -hmm. but I thought it was important to note since it came from his counselor and it will, you know, be prevalent later in the story. Yeah. Maybe he got caught with like stolen magazines or something like yeah. that. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, well, Kolheb didn't have a positive relationship with any family members. He said that his mother was always preoccupied with her relationships because she was married like nine times. Oh man. 
he described his stepdad as being very over aggressive and negative. He said he would get mad and throw things. And he was also just physically abusive. Uh, he would go years without having any kind of contact with his biological father. So I'm sure that kind of, you know, probably had to weigh on him. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Um, his relationship with his grandparents wasn't any better. His grandfather was also verbally and physically abusive. Uh, he remembers a time that when he was eight years old, uh, his grandfather drug him out of the house at 4 a.m. by his hair, tied him to a tree, and then beat him. And it was just for some, like, minor infraction. That's insane. Yeah, so not only was he physically abused, you know, they did nothing for this guy's brain by telling him that they didn't want him on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. In 1980, his behavior wasn't getting any better. He was still having trouble at home and at school, and he was eventually committed to a Georgia psychiatric hospital and spent three and a half months there. The summer he turned 12 in 1983, he reconnects with his dad and goes to spend the summer with him in Arizona. He goes out there, has a great time, and then has to come back home. Well, he gets home and he doesn't want to be with his mom and stepdad anymore. They're getting a divorce and things are just overall not so great for the family at the moment. So he tells his mom he wants to move out to Arizona with his dad. And she says no. So to try and entice him to stay with her, she goes out and buys him new bedroom furniture. She's trying to make his room nice for him, you know, just like stay here and mm -hmm. you know, you'll get a nice new room. Well, that did not work because he smashed all of it with a claw hammer. Oh my gosh. He then told her that he would kill her. So that night she locked herself and him in their rooms and was just terrified. Yeah. Um, and shortly after that, she decided to let him go to Arizona with his dad, which, smart choice. Yeah, she that made the right had. decision. Yeah. So things were okay out in Arizona with his dad for about six months, but then Colap says his dad just stops caring. His dad became less and less involved in his life. He had a lot of women that he would go out with all the time, so that kind of left him on the back burner. Mm -hmm. um, he calls his mom at one point and wants to come back home, and she just gave him excuses as to why he had to stay in Arizona. She didn't want him to come back. Um, there would be times that Colhep's dad would pick him up from school take him to a construction site and then they would steal things and then turn around and sell them. What? So, you know, father, father of the year to that guy. Uh, his criminal activities obviously started pretty early on. He said that uh, as a teen, he robbed a drug dealer from school. He kept the money and dumped the weed because this guy just like absolutely hates drugs. Okay. He's got like this weird thing against drugs. Um, but he needed the money for school, uh, like clothes and supplies, and his dad just wasn't providing those things for him. Um, the next crime he committed was at like a whole different level of gross and would land him in serious trouble. On November 25th, 1986, his dad was out of town and he had the house to himself. He's hanging out at home and decides he's going to get his dad's gun and just play around with it. He then makes his way to a local girl's house. She was 14 years old. 
uh, he had liked her, but she didn't like him back. She just wanted to be friends, and that obviously hurt the already fragile ego he mm-hmm. had. So he gets to her house and tells her that her boyfriend wanted to talk to her. That wasn't true. Um, he pulled out a gun and forced her into his home, where he tied her arms and legs with rope, taped her mouth closed, and then raped her. He walked her back home, and on the way there, he told her that if she told anyone, he would kill her and everyone in her family. Wow. Horrible situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, back at her house, her five-year-old brother was getting worried about her because she'd been gone so long, so he calls the police. He's on the phone with the police telling them that his sister is missing when she walks in. She immediately gets on the phone and told the police everything. And, like, honestly, like, that's a badass. Like, you just went through that horrifying experience. Mm -hmm. Somebody tells you, I'm going to kill your family and you if you tell. And then you're like, basically, no, screw you. Yeah. I'm telling. Yeah. So, you know, and, too, like, that would be... Like, just to have, like, that, like, the sense to tell, like, even though you were just traumatized, like, five minutes ago. Yeah, it's very brave. Mm-hmm. So, um, hours later, the cops were at Kolhep's home when they arrested him. Kolhep claims that he was glad they arrested him because he was tired of living with his dad and tired of being beaten all the time. That's really sad. Yeah. That's so sad. Yeah. Um, you know, but, like, couldn't you have just ran away? Yeah. Like, maybe, like, you guys, like, stole stuff and would sell it. Maybe, like, steal some stuff from your dad, sell it, and go live somewhere else. You know, which yeah. kind of jump to the extreme to yeah, get away from your dad. Poor choice. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, he was charged with sexual assault, kidnapping, and committing a dangerous crime against children. But in 1987, he pled guilty to the kidnapping charge, so they dropped the other two charges. He was then sentenced to 15 years in prison and was required to register as a sex offender. So, how old was he now? He was 15. He was 15 and got sentenced to 15 years in prison? Yep. Oh, I bet he didn't do well in there. He actually did pretty all right. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, he's serving his 15-year prison sentence. He went to school at a central Arizona college and worked various jobs within the prison, but he uh, eventually graduated with his bachelor's in computer science. No kidding. Yeah. Um, The uh, judge for the case uh, that originally, like, landed him the 15 years, uh, he thought that he was behaviorally and emotionally dangerous and that he could likely never be rehabilitated. Mm -hmm. His father also made the comment that the only emotion Todd was capable of was anger. So that would be pretty scary. Yeah, that's pretty common with uh, serial killers and such. Just displaying, like, really only anger? Yeah, they're just, like, or just callous and don't show any emotion at all. That's scarier than anger, It, it I think. is, but just to have one emotion is pretty typical, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, August 2001, he's released from prison at the age of 30 and makes his way to South Carolina, where his mom's still living. He gets a job as a graphic designer and starts attending church regularly. He moves into an apartment building, and people find out that he's a registered sex offender, and that's when he says he starts like getting harassed. 
So he goes to church and asks the pastor for advice, and the pastor says to him, you need to find a different church. Obviously, that's not the answer he wanted to hear, so he leaves pissed off. Yeah. He goes to his uh, grandpa's house a couple days later, and he's sitting there telling his grandpa about all the phone calls and messages he's receiving and that he's tired of dealing with it. His grandpa goes into his room, comes back out with some money, gives it to Cole Hep, and says, you know what to do with it, implying that Cole Hep should go get a gun and just kill all the people that were giving him a hard time. <laughs> oh my gosh, this family. I mean, honestly, his grandpa is clearly as nuts as he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Kolhep didn't go and buy a gun. He uh, went and bought four knives instead. So, um, I listened to an interview uh, done by Unforbidden Truth on YouTube, and it it was an excellent interview. It was just so much information that um, I actually left a ton of it out. So if you want like a more in-depth dive, Mm. you could listen to that because it was just really, really interesting. Uh, But in that interview, Cole Hepp states that after being harassed, he decides to go out for the night to play pool. Two guys are waiting for him in the parking lot. One guy has a knife and the other guy has a hammer. They get into an altercation, but according to Cole Hepp, things end badly for the two men. Kolhep claims that he cuts one guy like in the inner thigh, which slices his femoral artery open, and then he stabs him and kills him. The second guy tries to run off, and when Kolhep catches up to him, he cuts his throat. Uh. He went back into his house, grabbed a shower curtain, wrapped that around the smaller guy, and put him in his trunk, then wrapped the larger guy up in a comforter and put him in the front seat. He drove around and around for a a good while trying to find a place to bury them and settled on a frontage road where he dumped their bodies behind a barricade and threw brush over them. And he never got caught for that. That's incredible. Now, he said this in interviews Mm -hmm. and he's told the cops about it. Like, Mm -hmm. hey, there are two other guys. The cops have went to all kinds of these frontage roads and they've never found anybody. So I don't know if it's true. I don't know if maybe he just can't remember exactly what road it was, Mm -hmm. but it was kind of left at that. Like really, you know, and like Kolhep says that like the police aren't listening. They don't want to listen. They don't want to look into it. And the police say, you know, he hasn't given us any credible information. Hmm, So that's another, another thing about that is um, he's not alone in like bragging about killing more people than he actually has. I've seen several interviews with um, killers that they've claimed they've killed numerous people when um, there's no evidence to prove it. But yeah. Very interesting that they, I don't know. It's it's weird. It's like, it's like a theme with uh, serial killers. Like, mm. look at all these people I've killed. Right. And it's like, well, it's not. Like boasting about yeah. the killings and stuff. Which is weird. Why do you want to brag about that? I don't know. Um, speaking of like, multiple killings um i believe it was in between 2002 and 2005 um i didn't get like a real clear time frame of it but anyway he claims that he starts working for an arms dealer running guns he also claims that he met a group of guys while he would go to these like gun training programs and that they would go down to juarez and kill drug dealers and the people who are cooking drugs oh my gosh 
uh, this seems just real dumb and made up, and I'm not sure that I believe it. Um, he also claims that he was a contract killer for the government. I, I just, I just don't, I don't believe that. I mean, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but. Yeah. Uh, what do they call that when someone just lies all the time? Pathological liar. Pathological liar. Mm -hmm. It sounds like uh, this is an issue he has. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, on June 20th, 2006, he got his South Carolina real estate license. Even though he has a felony and is a registered sex offender, mm -hmm. he still got his license because he either played the severity, like played down the severity of the crime he committed and basically put all the blame on the victim or he just didn't disclose it at all. I read I read both things, but I mean, honestly, either way, he shouldn't have had it. Right, no, uh, no way. So in between running guns and killing drug dealers in Juarez, he also opens up his own real estate business. He got his pilot's license, graduated from college with a business administration and marketing degree, and bought a 95-acre tract of land. He also gets a girlfriend in 2006, Holly, at the time they met, or they got together, Holly was married, but she carried on a 10-year relationship with him anyway. Hmm. She describes him as being attentive and making her feel important, but that there was always something off about him, and she just couldn't put her finger on what it was. But she was so in love with him that she just kind of ignored it. Um, later on in the relationship, he asks her to buy a shipping container for his 95-acre property. So she does, and she stocks it with, you know, shelves and food and water, thinks nothing of it. And Holly wasn't, like, the only one who was weirded out by him. People in the community seemed to have, like, mixed feelings. On the outside, he was a super nice guy, successful, did really well at work, outgoing, professional. But it seems like a common theme was everyone thought he always had just something like a little creepy mm -hmm. or like a little weird about him. And then there was also some people who just didn't care for him at all. A previous business partner of his said that he would openly watch porn at work. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> who does that? This guy does. That's weird. Uh, the waitress at the local Waffle House, it, like they hated to wait on him because he was so creepy towards them. Mm -hmm. The cook actually ended up taking uh, his orders for them because they just didn't want to be around him. Uh, one of those waitresses was Megan Lee McGraw Coxey. And that, she is actually, uh, I guess, let's see. Let's see, hold on, let me count. One, two, three, four, five, six, his seventh victim. Okay. So it's the middle of December and Megan and her husband, Johnny Coxey, are just really down on their luck. They were addicted to drugs, couldn't hold down jobs. They had a baby that was removed from their custody. They were just really struggling and having a hard time getting their life going. Megan was arrested December 18th and charged with child neglect. She asked her mom to bail her out of jail because she had a job that she needed to get to. So Megan's mom paid her bond and she got out. Johnny had also went to jail on December 10th for unauthorized solicitation and for false informing. And he was released around the same time Megan was. So on December 19th, 2015, Megan and Johnny run into Colehep and he offers them some money to clean uh, the rentals properties that he owned. 
He picks them up, drives them out to his property to get some cleaning supplies. Kolhep says that he's loading all the cleaning supplies in his car when he hears Megan yell, now Johnny. He says that Johnny attacked him with a pocket knife. They struggle and he shoots Johnny two times in the chest. Hmm. Unfortunately, you know, I also saw results that say it was the torso. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, either way it went down, he ends up killing him. Yeah. So he walks up to Megan, makes her lay down on the ground, and he cuffs her. He then takes her to a shipping container and ties her to the wall. He walks out, digs a hole with the tractor, and buries Johnny's body. Cole help held Megan in the shipping container for about five or six days. He said that he'd bring her food and water and kept her fed and warm and uh, that they'd made a plan to let her go. He was going to give her $4,000, take her to Tennessee, but the deal was she could never come back and she couldn't rat him out to the police. Mm -hmm. So she agrees with the plan. Christmas morning, he comes back to check on her and when he opens the ship, like the door to the shipping container, the inside is on fire. He said that Megan had started a fire to try and escape. So he grabs her, pulls her out of the container and shoots her in the back of the head. He digs a hole and buries her in it. Kolob said that like while all of this was going on, that he got into a fight with his girlfriend who at the time, and she had accused him of cheating and he was actually out killing people. Like, honestly, I would much rather be cheated on yeah. Than to have a boyfriend who's a murderer. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know how that would make me feel just being with this person. Can you imagine, though, like you're keeping a girl mm-hmm. in a box. You kill her. Mm-hmm. You go back home and your girlfriend's like, where have you been? Have you right. been cheating on me? And just to act, quote unquote, normal. That's yeah. Just go about your daily business. And that's the thing. While all of this was going on. He ran a successful real estate biz- mm-hmm. business. He had multiple agents who like worked for his company and worked under him. He lived just a normal, normal ass life. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, every time I hear a story like this, which there are countless stories about, it's like the same thing. Very charismatic, uh, you know, a man of the community, a businessman, uh, you know, got everything going on for him. You know, what I've always wondered too is like, How does that anxiety, how are you not just dying inside every single day? They don't think about it. That's, that's weird. They don't have feelings. Like they don't, they're not like, oh, that I made a poor decision. They don't think like that. From what I understand, I'm no psychologist, but, um, that would make sense though, because I feel like any normal person, like, like a conscience, like I shouldn't, I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. A lot of times like there is none, they don't think like that. Oh. They just do it. Well, that's that's interesting to yeah. know because I've I've always thought that like, mm-hmm. how do they even like just go about their lives and? No, they're probably just pl- planning on what who to kill next. Oh, honestly, Jesus, that's yeah, terrible. It really is. Well, so on his property, in addition to the con- shipping container, right next to it was a garage with an upstairs apartment. He'd stocked them full with ammunition, guns, padlocks, targets, shovels, just. All kinds of doomsday prepper things. After he would purchase all these items, he would leave Amazon reviews about them. But not not like normal, like, I love, 
this Tupperware yeah, container. This product worked great for yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> definitely recommend it. Or, hey, don't buy it. This isn't made that well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he bought a Viper Tech stun gun and left the review, seriously trying to find a reason to zap one of my agents for being lazy. <laughs> it's going to be the new office motivational tool. And that's that's the tame one. What a psychopath. Uh, he bought a padlock with a hidden shackle, which why would anyone ever need that? Um, but on that one, he wrote, works great. Also, if someone talks back, go old school on them by putting it in a sock and beating them. They will not appreciate the hardened steel, but you will. <laughs> like, oh, I'm so sorry. What? This isn't funny. It's I'm not, just laughing because be it's la- so crazy. I know. But they get worse. That's just, that's not even, <laughs> so he's got, he has padlocks. He left a review for a padlock. What a nutcase. I know. I can't, I'm sorry. I'm not laughing. No, no, Because no. nothing about this situation is funny, <laughs> but he's just so psycho and just so brazen yeah. that it's wild to me. Couldn't someone like red flag these things and get them taken down That's or something? I'm saying. Oh my gosh. So for the padlock, he wrote, solid locks have five on a shipping container, won't stop them, but sure will slow them down what? till they are too old to care. It's almost unbelievable, you know? I can't believe, like, because he really did have somebody locked in a shipping container. Yeah, again, like, bragging, like, in plain sight. Like, I'm doing this thing. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? Seeing it, if I saw that, I'd probably be like, what a what a weird sense of humor. Yeah, kooky. Yeah, <laughs> you know, weird. I'd scroll on, think mm-hmm. nothing else about it. That's probably what happened. He le- also like left a comment on another padlock, uh, and he referenced the song "Hotel California" by the Eagles. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Oh, this is terrifying. That's creepy. Yeah, I was like, "Damn it, I like that song." Like, mm-hmm. I would have rather not had this guy associated with that song from now on. Yeah, no, crazy. Uh, the last one. I mean, it's not the last one. He left like 140 weird-ass Amazon reviews. But uh, the last one I have for you is uh, the one for the folding shovel. Keeping your car for when you have to hide the bodies and left your full-size shovel at home. (laughs) Okay, I'm so sorry. It's it's just nuts. (laughs) Does not come with a midget which would have been nice. What? Oh my gosh, I don't even know. This, he's just so insane. What? Just so out there, you know? Like, does not give a shit. Is People probably, looking at this, I would think that was just like a fake I review. would too. Like, oh, a kid playing a joke. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't think anything about it. This guy is dead serious, though. Oh, I know, right? Yeah. Um, Well, things are quiet in his life for about eight months. On August 31st, 2016, he claims his next victim, Charlie David Carver, age 32. His dad said that Charlie was caring, always wanted to help people, and that he was just happy. And honestly, Charlie, all the things I read about him, he sounds like a really great guy. Mm -hmm. Just like, I like hearing, this is probably going to sound weird, but I like hearing that people are happy. Yeah, no, that's not weird at all. Yeah, that's a good thing. um, Well, Charlie was dating Kayla Brown at the time he was killed. 
Kayla was an ex-girlfriend of Cole Hepp's friend Dustin. So that's kind of how her and uh, Cole Hepp met. And over the years, they kept in contact uh, through Facebook. Um, one day, Cole Hepp contacts Kayla to come and clean up some brush on his property because she's needing some money. Her and Charlie get in the car and head to Cole Hepp's property. He explains to them what he wants them to do, gives them a bottle of water and hedge clippers, and then heads back to the garage. Now, he says that when he comes back out, he hears Megan and Charlie discussing how they're going to steal from him because she wants to buy drugs. And he just snaps. He kills Charlie. He shoots him in the chest. And then one more time while he's laying on the ground. Kayla's version uh, is a little bit different. She said that they never discussed stealing from him or using drugs and that he just walked out with a gun and shot Charlie. Yeah, that's a little more believable. Exactly. So after he kills Charlie, he grabs Kayla, takes her to the same shipping container where he had kept Megan only eight months earlier. He handcuffed her hands and ankles and puts a ball gag in her mouth. He then leaves to dispose of Charlie's body. He comes back and tells her that he's sorry about Charlie, but that he wouldn't hurt her if she did what he said. He then tells her that he couldn't believe that she, that she didn't realize that he liked killing people. Huh. That is terrifying. Yeah, it really is. He eventually put a chain around her neck that was attached to the storage container and then made her uh, give him her and Charlie's passwords for their phones and social media. Over the course of two months, Kayla would remain captive. He surprisingly would bring her food, water, books, um, but he'd only let her out for about 30 to 45 minutes a day so that she could clean herself with a bucket of water and so that he could rape her in the apartment above the garage. Awful. He would go on to make like all kinds of like wild claims. Kayla said that he would tell her like he's a military contractor and he would kill people for the government. I don't believe that for one second. Uh, but he would never get caught because if he did, his handlers would just get him out of it. He told her that he would sell people to sex traffickers. And then he also told her about the girl that was kept there before her and claimed that he had killed another four people years ago who worked in a bike shop. Man. He was convinced and he would try and convince her that Stockholm syndrome would kick in and that she'd be happy with him. He was going to build her a house on his property for them to live in. Everything was going to work out perfectly for them. She, and she obviously, you know, did not feel the same way because this guy is a nut job. And she endured two months of horrific abuse doing like just whatever she needed to do to stay alive. Isn't the whole point of like Stockholm Syndrome for them to just kind of fall into it? You don't have to convince yeah. people. That's not how it works. That's what I thought too. Like, oh, you're gonna get, you're gonna catch Stockholm syndrome eventually, and you're gonna like me. And it's like, I don't think so. Well, he has a different version of how her captivity went down. He said that she was basically happy being held in the storage shed. He would buy her whatever she asked for. She had an MP3 player, a PlayStation, new clothes, an alarm clock. A week and a half into her captivity, he said that she offered him sex in exchange for drugs. 
So he would give her the drugs and then have sex with her, which I don't believe this. I really do think this is a crock of shit because this guy swears up and down that he would go to Juarez and specifically target and kill drug dealers. Mm -hmm. If you hate drugs that much, you're not going to hand them out like candy to people. That's true. He said that she, Kayla, had started like a master and kitten thing, which I think is like a BDSM thing, but like the kitten being the slave in this situation. Mm Mm-hmm. October rolls around and she asks for a book on witchcraft. He says that she wants to go outside on Halloween and do some kind of ritual with a pentagram and candles, but that doesn't ever end up happening. Um, He said that he comes clean to his friend Dustin, Kayla's ex, and Dustin says that he needs to get rid of her. So he tells Dustin that he took his advice and killed Kayla, even though he didn't. Because I guess Dustin, he just... Dustin wanted to go over there and rape Kayla. And he says that, or Cole Hepp said that to protect Kayla, he just lied to Dustin and was like, well, I already killed her, so you can't. Uh, One day he says that she like really pissed him off because she wouldn't stop asking for heroin. So he went outside, got his tractor, dug a grave next to Charlie's, took her out there and told her that if she kept acting up, that that was going to be her new home. Oh my gosh. Isn't that fucked up? Wild, yeah. I don't believe his story. I don't. I really think, like you had mentioned earlier, that he's probably a pathological liar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he just seems full of shit based off the interviews that I've watched and, like, kind of just like hearing him speak. Mm -hmm. Um, But let's just say, in the realm of pretend, that he's telling the truth. If I were her in that situation, I'd tell that dumbass whatever he wanted to hear if it meant me staying alive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I'm not saying I believe him, but even if some things in his account were true, then, oh, well, you know, she's alive and she did what she had to do mm-hmm. to s- stay alive. Um, the beginning of September, everybody was starting to worry about Kayla and Charlie, No one had heard from them. Calls and text messages weren't being returned. So a friend of Kayla's, Leah Miller, went by their apartment to check on them. Charlie's car was gone, but Kayla's was parked out front. And they obviously weren't there, but their dog was. He'd been left without food and water. And that was just really off because they would never just forget to feed their dog and leave him by himself in the apartment. So on September 3rd, Charlie's mom, Claudia... Claudia Shiflett filed a missing persons report with the Anderson, South Carolina Police Department. She had also went to check their apartment, but no one was there. Leah Miller follows suit on September 5th and also files a a missing persons report. A couple of weeks later, a Facebook post from Charlie pops up. He claims that him and Kayla are fine and that they got married, but the family and friends were like, no, something's off. The tone of the post was wrong. It just didn't sound like Charlie. And it was posted like weeks after they had gone missing. He would go back and forth in the comments with people that they were fine, but it was still just not sitting right with everyone. At one point, he even shared a missing post, like flyer for him and Kayla. It turned out that it was 
Cole up using the passwords Kayla had been forced to give him and was pretending to be Charlie on Facebook. Oh, no. Remember the Amazon review that he made for the padlock, the Hotel California comment? He also made a Facebook post about that song to Charlie's Facebook. Isn't that creepy? Yeah, it's Like, that's like... That's just real spooky. That's thoughtful. Like, you're... Mm -hmm. You know what you're doing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, the police eventually get access to Kayla's Facebook and see that she'd been talking to Kolhap about coming to clean his property. Around the same time that happened, they were able to figure out where their cell phones last pinged. So they look up property records and find out that it's Todd Kolhap's 95-acre property in Woodruff, South Carolina. Uh, side note, I used to live in South Carolina, and this place is only like two hours no, no kidding. north from where I lived. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's weird. There it is. Uh, November 3rd, the Spartanburg County Sheriff's Office race over to his property and start looking for Kayla and Charlie. They find Kayla when they hear banging coming from the shipping container. When they finally get the door open, they find Kayla with a chain around her neck and a chain around her ankles, too. And I saw the chain in the pictures when I was researching this case. It, it was awful. It wasn't like just some regular chain, like flimsy chain. Mm-hmm. It had like really thick links. Like, like they had to like pry. Some with type those, of like logging chain. Yeah, like pry with bolt cutters to get it off of her. Wow. Well, she was able to tell them everything she knew about him killing Charlie. And while this was going on, the police went to Cole Hepp's home and were questioning him about Kayla being on his property for the last two months. He denied everything and pretended like they had no idea what he was talking about. Jeez. And I just want to point out how brave I think it is that Kayla, like, immediately started helping the police to bring him down. Like, she'd been held captive for two months. Like, just the trauma of that and then having to be like, you know, you're rescued and then, okay, well, thank you for saving me, but here's X, Y, and Z of what happened, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like a lot of people would probably be just really traumatized and just shut down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... And you couldn't blame them either. Like, um, she actually told the ambulance driver that he was planning to kill someone named Holly next. Holly, his girlfriend of 10 years, was next on his list. Um, November 4th, police go out there to look for the victims and find one person buried. November 5th, they find find out that uh, the first body they found was actually Charlie. November 5th, Kolhep is walking the property with the investigator and leads them to Megan and Johnny's body. And he also admits to killing four people 13 years earlier. So finally, after 13 years, the family and friends of the victims from the superbike murders would have answers. Back in 2003, Kolhep goes to Superbike Motorsports to buy a bike. He tries driving the bike home, but he can't because he doesn't know how to ride it. So the employees at Superbike have to drive it home for him. He goes back to the store a couple days later and wants to talk to them about maybe returning the bike or buying something else because he's just having a hard time riding it. He says that they're very rude. They made fun of him for not being able to ride the bike. And 
you know, I, I wasn't there. I don't know if that actually happened. And even if it did, I feel like those kind of jokes would probably just be like lighthearted and fun. Like, oh, you couldn't ride it? Like, you're going to get another one? Like, yeah. not anything to get so bent out of shape about. Right. Um, so he leaves, and about two or three days later, his bike is stolen. The cops come out, and a police report is filed, uh, but the bike never turned back up, so he goes back to the shop to see about getting another one. While he's there sitting on bikes, um, trying to decide which one he wants to buy now, he said that the owner and the service manager are still being rude and made a comment about his bike being stolen. So instead of just leaving and going somewhere else to buy a bike, he decides to start looking around to figure out where all the cameras are. And this is when he makes his plan to kill the employees at Superbike Motorsports. Why do you keep going back there? If you don't like the way that they conduct business, Mm -hmm. you can literally go anywhere else. (laughs) Crazy. November 6, 2003, he walks into Superbike Motorsports, and there are a couple of customers in the store looking around. He pretends to look around as well, and once the other customers leave, he tells them that, you know, he found the bike he wants, and he wants to buy it. Chris Sherbert, age 26, takes the bike in the back of the shop and gets it ready for him. Colette follows him back and shoots him twice, two times in the chest, killing him. He then walks back up front and is confronted by the owner, Scott Ponder, age 30, the service manager, Brian Lucas, also age 30, and Scott Ponder's mom, Beverly Guy, age 52. It's there that he opened fires on them and shoots Beverly in the chest two to three times. Scott and Brian run towards the door. He shoots Brian in the back and Scott in the hip. Scott makes his way outside into the parking lot. Colab walks up to him and shoots him in the forehead. He then walks back into the building and shot everyone in the forehead one more time. After killing everyone, he goes home, takes his gun apart, and puts the pieces into two different bags of kitty litter and throws it in the dumpster. Uh, An interesting thing about this, they never, for 13 years, had no idea who committed those murders. Mm -hmm. Well, in the police interview that I watched, there was no prints, no nothing left behind. He said that he would like use his arm to open the doors. Yeah. When he loaded uh, the bullets into his gun, he wore two pairs of like rubber gloves. So there would be no prints on anything. And also the gun he bought was like, it wasn't able to be traced back to anywhere. They probably knew it was a Beretta because of the shell casings, like a nine millimeter. Mm -hmm. Um, but it wasn't a registered gun. They, they, they never found anything That's wild. at all. Um, so like I was saying, I watched a police interview when he was talking about the superbike murders. And this guy is just a complete tool. Mm-hmm. Like he was proud of what he did. It was honestly really weird to watch. It just really like disgusting. Yeah. So... I listed, uh, I have a couple of things that I thought were like extra douchey Mm -hmm. because I really want to drive home the point that this guy is just really full of himself and is obviously unhinged. Um, He said that he waited for the customers to leave the shop because collateral damage isn't cool. But, But killing innocent people is. Killing people that, you know, you just didn't like what they said to you, that's okay. Yeah, he had to show them. You know, like you don't I'm, make fun the, I'm of the me. big guy, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, he bragged about how fast the killings took place, saying, I cleared that building in under 30 seconds. That was a big building. You guys would have been proud of me. Hmm. Like, like he's talking to the cops? Yeah, telling the cops this. When the guys started running away from him, he said, I did a tactical reload, then dropped the other guy before he got to the door. That was a very fast reload. A tactical reload? Shut the hell up. You're not in the army. You're not you're just some ding dong with a mm-hmm. gun. Yeah. Like. And then when he shot Beverly Guy, he said, uh, not my best work. Wow. Like ew. Gross. Yeah. You know? Like it's really gross. I watched an episode of World's Most Evil Killers and for this case, and in it uh, was Scott Ponder's wife, Melissa. Melissa described Scott as being gentle and that he was just really good at making people feel comfortable. He also really loved motorcycles and uh, was really proud of the small business that he had. He was the owner of the Superbike Motorsports. Oh, okay. And this is super sad. At the time of Scott's death, Melissa was pregnant with their first child. Oh, no. It, she, she actually forgives Colehep for what he did. And I, th- I think that really speaks to what kind of person she is mm-hmm. and just how kind and forgiving she is. Because that would not be me. Yeah. No. I, would, I would take your hatred, like take all that hatred to the grave mm-hmm. and just live with it. I would never, I don't think I have it in me to forgive someone for doing that. Yeah, I don't think I do either. Now, this is also, this just speaks to how weird his family is. His mom tried to do what I thought looked like some kind of damage control. In an interview with CBS, she told them that he was not a monster, just a bad boy. And that he wasn't doing it for his enjoyment. He was doing it because he was mad and hurt. I don't know. I feel like he took pleasure in killing people, personally. I do, too. Yeah. And also, like, how are you going to defend him? Your kid is an actual psychopath. Yeah. He critiqued his own killings. Yeah. Like, oh, not my best work. Like, what? Hmm. Well, he pled guilty to seven counts of murder, two counts of kidnapping, and one count of criminal sexual assault on May 26, 2017. He was sentenced to serve seven consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole, and an additional 30 years for the sexual assault charges, and another 30 years for kidnapping. Um, I don't think his handlers <laughs> came through on this one, because <laughs> no. he is still sitting in jail. Left him hanging. Yep. And I really, I, I'm not going to say I liked this case because like it was sad. Yeah. This guy's, but I watched a ton of interviews on him and it really wasn't that hard to find information on this Mm -hmm. because all of his interviews just scream like, I want to stay relevant. I want everyone to know what I did. I'm proud of what I've done. Like, Mm -hmm. um, he he does like interviews from prison. He's even got like a correspondence going with a journalist because a journalist is like trying to figure out get any information he can from the first two murders about the guys in the parking lot. Yeah, wow. So far, I don't think he's had any luck with that. But uh, 
that is the case of the Amazon review killer. A wild story, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all I have for today. Thanks for listening. Until next time. See you later.